Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? It's time for a Tech Stuff Tidbits episode. Been a while since we've done one of those. And this one's all about the first flight simulator. And, you know, we use computers to do a lot of stuff. And a lot of the stuff we do with computers is super cool. Now, a lot of it is super uncool, too. But we're going to focus on the cool bits for this episode. And while I can't point at any one use case of computers as my favorite, like I can't say using computers to do this is my absolute favorite use, simulations have to be way up there. So for a computer to simulate anything, it has to take a lot of factors into account. A really good simulation won't just figure out how these factors will impact whatever it is you're simulating, It'll also figure out how the factors influence each other. So when you talk about stuff like weather simulations, computer models that, you know, crunch tons of numbers to attempt to predict future weather, it goes a little bit beyond, well, historically, when the weather was like this, then it rained more often than it didn't. So there's a greater than 50% chance of rain today. 
that's kind of where we got started with weather predictions, but you know, using historical data to predict future conditions. But now we've got much more sophisticated models that run on supercomputers, essentially, in order to project out what the weather is going to be. Anyway, the world of simulations is enormous, right? It covers all sorts of different things. It's got a very complicated history. It's not like we can point to one thing and say this was the first simulator. Uh, there are simulators that are used for entertainment, you know, like maybe you drive a virtual car around a racetrack. Or maybe you pit an army of computer-controlled zombies against an army of one, a nearly invincible computer-controlled John Wick. But today, like I said, I really wanted to talk about the origins of the flight simulator, which is interesting because no computers are involved whatsoever. You see, these days, flight simulators are incredibly sophisticated. There are some that require you to get into a cockpit that has a virtual screen. It's got a billion dials and indicators in it. It's got complex controls that precisely mimic specific aircraft. It's mounted on a platform that can be precisely controlled by various uh, components to manage the tilt and all of these factors, right? But then there are also some home PC flight simulators that are really astounding, uh, perhaps the most famous being Microsoft Flight Simulator. Modern flight simulators can create all sorts of flight conditions. They can rely on hefty computing power to get it all done in the process. But again, that's not how they got started. It's very useful for pilots now to be able to step into a safe space and practice flying in different conditions. But when it all got started, it was taking a much less technically sophisticated approach. Now, what most folks acknowledge as the first flight simulator had no computer components at all. In fact, it didn't even rely on electronics. It was a purely mechanical system that used air and designed to teach pilots how to fly by instruments alone. Now, by that, I mean pilots would learn how to read the various instruments in their cockpit, you know, the various dials and things, in order to understand. Things like their altitude, their heading, the pitch, the yaw, the speed at which they were traveling, both, you know, in a forward direction and vertically, and to use all this information to pilot their aircraft, even if they are otherwise in conditions that would prevent the pilot from seeing their surroundings. Uh, in the earliest days of heavier than air flight, pilots relied solely on their own sense of sight to navigate, and take off and to land. They relied often on their own body position to control the aircraft. The Wright brothers built a plane with had some controlled surfaces, and that allowed the pilot to have some ability to control the, the aircraft in three dimensions, though in, in many cases the, the pilot was also having to use their own body to do that, not just like a control, but to physically shift in order to help uh uh, move the aircraft where they wanted it to go, but there were no real dials or gauges or anything like that. So the, these first flights, the Wright brothers first flight was in 1903. Uh, but over the next two and a half decades, early aviators and engineers began to build more sophisticated aircraft that had more control systems so that you could do finer tuned maneuvers in the air and they also included instruments to help pilots maintain proper control of their aircraft. 
Sometimes, the instruments would indicate something that might feel counterintuitive to a pilot. And then the pilot has to make a choice, right? Do they choose to control their aircraft in tune with how they feel, or do they choose to do it in tune with how the instruments are reading? And this did not always turn out so well when the pilots chose to go with their gut feeling. That actually would become an issue because you would undergo certain stresses as a pilot in an aircraft that would make you feel a certain way that was uh, convincing you that one thing was happening when in fact that wasn't happening. But if you act on that, then you could end up creating a dangerous situation. The instruments were there to tell the pilot what's really going on. You know, assuming the instruments are in working order, which is why you have to go through that long pre-flight checklist, then you need to trust in that data and make your decisions based on that. So in 1929, a pilot named Jimmy Doolittle performed a pretty daring task. He flew in an aircraft in which his view of the outside world was obstructed. Uh, now, some versions of the story say that he flew with a safety pilot who presumably could see, but Doolittle was in control for the whole flight and he could not see. So he felt that pilots were relying too heavily on their own senses. And as I said, those can be fooled in the environment of a cockpit. Doolittle recognized that pilots encounter situations that can trick them into thinking that they're heading in a different direction or that they were suddenly climbing or diving when perhaps they're not. So Doolittle was a big believer in flight instruments and how reliable they can be. And in 1929, he proved it. He flew by instruments alone, so he couldn't see anything. He was just using the instruments to figure out when he could take off, where he was going, how high he was, how fast he was going. He flew a course and then came back down and landed the plane without ever being able to see the world around him. It actually reminds me of how submarine operators work, right? Like submarines, your, your big submarines, the ones that go deep, they don't have windows. You can't see outside to the world around you. You are basing everything on your instrumentation and math. You're keeping track of how long you are on a course and how quickly you're moving and you're using charts to understand what the sea around you, what those conditions are like, and you make your decisions based off that. Like it's, you can't see anything. Same sort of thing, but in an aircraft. And his point, Doolittle's point, was a really important one. Aircraft travel in all sorts of conditions. You know, you're not just flying in clear, well-lit conditions. You could be flying at night. Or maybe there's fog or other precipitation. Maybe there's smoke. So in those kinds of conditions, the instrument panel might be all the information you can rely upon while you're trying to operate the aircraft. So you better darn well know how to fly by instruments. Now, the problem is learning to fly by instruments is challenging. Typically, you would need to secure an aircraft, right? First, you got to have an aircraft. Then you need to have an instructor who can help you as you are learning. And you have to spend lots and lots of hours learning how to trust those instruments and to make decisions based on their readings. Plus, you needed aircraft that actually had those instruments installed. This was a non-trivial challenge in the early days of aviation. Yes, we had invented and engineered these instruments, things like altimeters that would tell you how high you were. Now, we had these things, 
but a lot of aircraft just didn't have them on there. Even the Army Air Corps had instruments that were kind of sitting in storage, waiting to be installed in aircraft. But to do that, you have to make time to install it and test it and make sure it works and all that kind of stuff. And in the meanwhile, the aircraft you are are upgrading isn't in service. And often they were needed in service. So there were there was a long stretch where a lot of the aircraft that the Army Air Corps was using didn't have these instruments at all. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about the guy who came up with a solution or a potential solution for the challenges you face training pilots to fly by instruments alone. Uh, A guy named Edwin Albert Link. We'll talk more about him when we come back after this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I got to have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road, into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. 
No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Okay, before the break, I was talking about Doolittle and how he was demonstrating that a pilot could fly just using instruments without having any view of the outside world at all. And then I mentioned that there was this enterprising inventor who came up with a device that would let prospective pilots train without ever having to leave the ground. And again, that inventor was Edwin Albert Link. So Link was born just one year after the Wright brothers took flight for the first time. So by that, I mean, he was born in 1904, just in case you forgot that I had mentioned the Wright brothers flew in 1903. He was born in Indiana, but when he was still a young kid, his family moved to Binghamton, New York. And his father was the owner of the Link Piano and Organ Company. And yes, this does matter. So young Eddie grew up around mechanical systems, and these were systems that were using pumped air to generate results, in the case of organs and pianos, to generate musical notes. The pianos that Link the Elder were making were automatic or player pianos. Those use air power to work. I've done episodes about how these player pianos work, so I'm not going to go over it all again. But if you've ever seen player piano rolls, it's like this long roll of paper that has holes punched into the paper in different spots. Those holes are where air can pass through. And it was the air that would power the mechanical system within the piano to have keys pressed down and, and produce a, a note. So the pianos and organs were using bellows to pump air through systems to generate sound. And that would end up being the basis for Link's invention later on down the road. In fact, he was using actual parts from his father's piano and organ company in order to build this first simulator so much so that later on down the line, there was a point where the organ company needed to salvage parts from a simulator in order to repair an organ. So that's kind of incredible. Anyway, Link the Younger, Eddie Baby, he was uh, fascinated by flying. Early in the 1920s, he took some flying lessons. You know, this is when, at this point, he's still a teenager. And even purchased a Cessna in 1927. But he also recognized the challenges I've already mentioned about flying, particularly about how to learn to fly by instruments. Like lessons were also expensive, right? Not everybody could afford to hire out an aircraft and an instructor and take all that time to fly up in the air and learn how to fly by instruments. He saw that there was an opportunity here to create something that would make the training process simpler. And he knew that these skills were really important to be a dependable pilot, to be able to be a really capable pilot. You needed to learn how to fly by instruments. So he came up with this crazy idea, and that was to build a mechanical flight simulator. It consisted of a wooden cockpit, and it was just big enough, really, to hold a person and then have the, the various uh, instrumentation fed through to the rest of the system. But yeah, it was not huge. It was little wooden cockpit. You'd climb in. It had a door that you could open and climb through. It also had a hard top cover that would completely enclose the pilot inside. And there was no way to view the outer world. You could just see the instrument panel. That's it. 
but the instrument panel would provide all the information needed to the pilot inside. The instrument panel actually worked. It was connected to the rest of the system. The whole cockpit was mounted onto a universal joint that could tilt in various ways so that the simulator could simulate changes in pitch. That's when the nose of the plane is going up or going down. That's your pitch. And also roll. Roll is the rolling to the left or to the right. Uh, the actual base of the apparatus could rotate. So that could simulate yaw. Yaw is rotating right or left as opposed to rolling right or left. Air pumps would supply pressurized air to the bellows underneath the universal joint. So by inflating or allowing to deflate bellows, you could tilt the cockpit. So, you know, you inflate the bellows more on one side and they push up and tilt the plane in the opposite direction. So the bellows on the right go up, the plane ends up tilting to the left. And this was actually controlled by the controller stick inside the simulator. As you move the controller stick, it would allow valves to open and close. And so the bellows would get more air or be allowed to release air. And that would actually change the orientation of the simulator itself. So the response wasn't immediate because this is all air powered, but it would reflect whatever the pilot was doing inside the cockpit. So it wouldn't be quite the same sort of responsiveness you would experience with an actual aircraft, but it did simulate it just at a slightly slower response time. Now, officially the simulator would become known as the link trainer, or at least the whole line of these would be known as the link trainer. The more common name, especially in the military, when they would become popular a little bit later, was the blue box because the cockpit was essentially a box that you would get client, you would climb into and get shut up in. And at least in the United States, they were frequently painted blue. In other nations, they would be painted different colors. Like I said, the instruments inside the cockpit actually would give information to the pilot. While the blue box would never actually get off the ground, it was is firmly earthbound, the altimeter inside the blue box could inform the pilot of how high they were going via the simulation. So you could also get readouts for things like horizontal speed, vertical speed, your heading, and all that kind of stuff. Now, while the blue box couldn't crash, thus it was you know safer than a real aircraft would be, so you could put pilots through it without worrying about them encountering you know, rough air or bad weather and getting out of their depth and tragedy following, the blue box itself was not entirely safe. One unfortunate feature of the blue box, it's hard to say that over and over super fast. Anyway, one unfortunate feature of it was that in order to be able to see these instruments that are, you know, meant to be your guide when you're flying, Eddie decided to have everything painted with radium. So radium is luminescent. It glows in the dark, but it's also radioactive and being exposed to radium for prolonged periods could lead to a higher risk of bad health outcomes over time. So it is entirely possible that early trainees encountered serious health issues later on in their lives, in part due to the training simulator. It gets really tricky to draw firm consequences like you can typically talk in in terms of chance like probabilities but it it's very difficult to say definitively x number of people develop say cancer as a result of training in these simulators but that was a risk and we didn't know about it at the time 
the link trainer also had a station for a human instructor. So they would not be in the simulator. They would actually be sitting outside at a desk like thing that would have a map, a radio so that they could talk to the person who is inside the simulator and they would have their own set of instrument readouts so they could actually see the same readouts that the pilot would see. So the instructor could give instructions to the pilot and then monitor the instruments to see if the pilot was performing the maneuvers properly in order to, you know, fulfill the instructions they were given. The pilot in turn learned to fly by instruments alone while remaining safe on the ground. So even if they did totally with it, they would not come careening toward the ground and crash. Link opened up a flying school and used a simulator, which was called the Pilot Maker, to train students. But the timing for this was more than a little bit unfortunate, because remember, this was 1929 when he built the first prototype. Well, 1929 also marked the beginning of the Great Depression, an enormously damaging economic recession. Not even a recession. I mean, it was a depression. And Link was able to produce some of his simulators for amusement parks where they were used for entertainment purposes. But it was hard to get students because a lot of people just couldn't afford the the classes. So things were looking a little grim, but they would change due to a scandal and a string of tragedies. I'll explain more when we come back from this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I got to have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town, I use my smartphone to look up things to do, or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. 
Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road-into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Before the break, I mentioned that a scandal and some tragedies would end up changing things for Edwin Link and bring his his simulators into demand. And the scandal was all about mail delivery in the United States, as in sending mail or, or post, if you prefer, letters, packages, that kind of stuff. Several companies that would later become big commercial passenger airlines really got their start by hauling mail between cities. Airmail, right? And this was after the post office itself had operated its own airmail service, a service that was plagued in the early days by accidents that led to the tragic loss of life. More than a dozen pilots in the early years died as a result of crashes. And eventually the post office was given permission. This would be in the 1920s to contract with private airlines to carry U.S. mail. Uh, it got really complicated. It was a process that these private companies would enter into. Uh, they would bid against each other. So they're competing against each other for the right to carry mail uh, along certain routes because that was like a guaranteed revenue source. They were also attempting to turn into passenger airlines at the same time. And it was really complicated. Uh, the U S government had an interest in supporting this burgeoning institution, this, this new type of industry. So there was this desire to make certain that, you know, the government wasn't going to do something that was going to slow down the adoption of flight, but the process was so closed off and had some contradictions or at least perceived contradictions in it that a scandal developed and it involved contract pricing, the bidding situation, and it implied that the U.S. government was giving favorable treatment to some companies at the expense of others, even in cases where one company would offer a more competitive bid to carry the mail along a certain route, but the route would instead be awarded to a totally different company, meaning that the government was going to have to pay more to this other company. And that money is all taxpayer money. So that's why there was this big scandal. The newspapers report, hey, your taxes are going to fund airmail, which is fine, except the government is being wasteful because instead of awarding contracts to the most competitive companies, they're going with these other ones, and it looks really buddy-buddy and corrupt. So this ultimately 
kind of forced the government's hand. And in early 1934, the U.S. would shift airmail duties from the private commercial sector to the military. Specifically, the Army Air Corps would take over airmail delivery in the United States. But there was a huge problem. The Air Corps did not have an excess of fully trained pilots with a lot of flight experience. In fact, their most highly trained pilots were busy training the next generation of pilots. They were all tied up in pilot schools. More than half of the pilots that were tapped for airmail service had less than two years of flying experience to their names. Most of them had never flown in bad weather. Most of them had never flown at night. And literally only a couple of them had completed a significant time of flying just by instruments. So you've got this job of delivering a whole lot of mail. So the demand is there. You're relying on inexperienced pilots. And primarily, the Air Corps was planning on doing night runs. So the mail was going to be delivered at night. Again, most of the pilots had never even flown at night. Now, as you might imagine, this inevitably led to tragic consequences. There were numerous crashes and fatalities. Unusually severe weather in the early winter months of 1934 contributed to the problem uh, significantly. And you had around a dozen deaths in a couple of months. And it was bad enough for the government to quickly pass the Airmail Act of 1934, which would return airmail duties to the commercial industry, not the military anymore. However, it also included more rules that would allow for better transparency with regard to the bidding process in order to avoid the appearance of favoritism. Meanwhile, the Army Air Corps secured the purchase of half a dozen Link Trainer simulators because they then recognized that they were really putting pilots in danger. There were people who were calling the approach the Air Corps was using a death sentence for pilots. So this would allow pilots to get more experience and familiarity with flying by instruments without having to dedicate aircraft that could otherwise be put into other service. So it saved the aircraft for, you know, official military use, and it gave pilots more time to learn these systems so that they could operate the aircraft more effectively and safely. The value of the simulators was realized right away, and Eddie would see his invention go into serious demand in the following years because a little thing called World War II happened. And pretty much every nation in the Allied forces would end up purchasing simulators from Edwin Link in order to train new pilots. He supposedly ended up making 10,000 of these things throughout World War II. He and his company. It wasn't just him by himself. That would have been insane. But yeah, his company produced 10,000 simulators for Allied forces to train pilots throughout World War II. Now, by this point, Link had really refined his invention. He introduced more instruments to provide students the tools they needed to handle their aircraft more precisely. It could even simulate a plane going into an engine stall because that was something that could happen. You have the plane climb too high and the engine's not getting enough air for internal combustion to continue. It stalls out and it goes into a fall. They could even send the simulator into a spin which would give pilots a safe space to learn how to handle these emergencies because they could happen while you're operating these aircraft in a war theater. 
So yeah, uh, it was clearly an, a needed asset and giving people the chance to learn these ways of, of how to handle aircraft in extreme situations without actually putting them in danger meant that you were really improving their effectiveness once they were out there actually serving. The most common version of the simulator at this time was known as the Army Navy Trainer Model 18, a.k.a. the ANT-18 for short. There are actually a few of these old Link trainers that survive to this present day in various museums and stuff. In fact, there are some that apparently at least let people sit in the trainer and feel what it's like to fly a simulation. Uh, I've seen YouTube videos of people being able to do it. There was one museum where I, they were talking about letting kids come in and experience what it was, although they frequently have limited control of the simulator. They, they have uh, restricted the full movement of the simulator, so it can't do the full you know pitch and yaw and, and roll that it could have done in the old days. But you get a little, a little taste of what it's like. Oh, also, they've removed all the radium instruments, which is probably, I mean, it is for the best. So you might find one where all the instrument panels are made up of stickers, which arguably are less, less useful when you're learning how to fly a plane. If the indicator never changes because it's just a sticker on the dashboard, that's a problem. But yeah, that was the the first or what most people acknowledge as the first flight simulator. Really incredible that it could be done with air bellows and pulley systems, you know, just mechanical components to give this ability for pilots to learn how to operate an aircraft under suboptimal conditions. It's it's phenomenal to me that Edwin Link figured out a way of doing that as early as 1929. Uh, obviously, in the years after World War II, we would get much more sophisticated flight simulators, including computerized ones. Uh, they would enter into both the military and the commercial sector, and then as well to the consumer sector, where we could get a game that gamifies flight simulators to some degree, some of which were obviously limited in their sophistication where yes, you could fly this flight simulator, but it wasn't maybe the most realistic simulation all the way up to the more recent ones where from what I understand it is almost precisely what you would encounter if you were going to a commercial grade flight simulator, obviously with the exception of most people don't have all the controls that are modeled precisely after the ones that you would find in aircraft, nor does the average person have a chair that will, you know, pitch and roll the way the aircraft will go, but still really cool. And, uh, honestly, when I tell these stories, when I look back at these sort of things and I learn more about how this was achieved, it really stresses to me how phenomenal human beings are, how inventive and innovative they are and how they can, put problem solving to tasks where perhaps a year earlier you would just think, well, that's just impossible. There's no way to learn how to fly by instruments unless you go up into the air yourself. And yet someone figures out a way to do it. To me, that is just amazing. Maybe it's because of my own limited <laughs> imagination, creativity, and invention that I'm so flabbergasted by it. 
But it really, to me, is, is just inspiring to think, wow, humans are really creative people who come up with incredible solutions. They can also come up with incredible pains in the butt. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat everything, but I do find it inspiring that we're capable of tackling a difficult challenge and figuring out an interesting way to get past that challenge. So I try and think about that whenever I'm feeling a little overwhelmed that, you know, sometimes it just takes a little thinking outside of the blue box to get things going. Hope you enjoyed this Tech Stuff Tidbits episode. I welcome you to write in and let me know what topics you would like me to cover in future episodes. You can do so on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. Just send me a message. Let me know what you would like to hear. Or you can download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. It's free to use. Once you have it installed, you can just go to that little search engine at the top and search for Tech Stuff. You'll find the podcast page on there. And on the podcast page, you'll see a little microphone icon. If you click on that, you can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. Let me know what you would like to hear. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.